right, I believe it's a children's church Sunday, correct? So children, you may be dismissed to head down to children's church. And for the adults that remain, if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9, we're going to continue, recontinue, repick up, whatever you reestablish, maybe that's the right word, our study through the book of Exodus. Also, it's a good time to remind us, you guys did a wonderful job singing today, by the way, but there are some newer folks here who may not have ever heard our lone singing rule. We have one singing rule, and so I'd like to ask a volunteer to tell me what our lone singing rule is. Colette, you look like you know, okay? No, that, that's half of it, okay? Sing, okay, what, what, let's see here, let's come, I asked Zachary at Pioneer Bible Camp, and he didn't get it. So this is a shot at redemption, Zachary. What is our singing rule? Yes, that's right. Sing loud enough that you can hear the sound, the sonorous sound of your own voice. So good job, Zach. And um, so you guys did an excellent job of that today, but let's keep that rolling. I want that to become one of the hallmarks of our church as a uh, congregation that really sings out. And we'll have to just keep reminding ourselves and working at that, that you guys are doing a terrific job. Exodus chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 12, and we will re-engage our study of the book of Exodus now. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust all over the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. The magicians, by the way, pass out of history with those words. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. If you'd like to give titles to sermons, the title for this sermon is the line, As Leaves on the Tree. It's a line from Immutable, Unchangeable, God Only Wise, a famous hymn from the 1820s that if you would like to look up later today, I think it might be a blessing to you. As nations rise, as our, the health and vigor of our economy and of our bodies rise, they're as 
green leaves on a tree that will one day wither and pass away. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text this morning. Father, would you give us grace to understand not only this passage, but many of the principles that you're trying to teach us from it. And I pray that we would focus our hearts and minds on you. If there be a hard or bitter heart among us, please soften it. Please allow them to relent a hand that holds out strong against you. And I pray that you would break up the fallow ground and draw that person to yourself. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reflecting this week that we live in a very dangerous land. We live in a dangerous time. But I think the dangers that we face, whether they be from chat GPT or uh, tyrannical rulers the world over, whatever it is that we think imperils us, there is a great danger that I don't think we've really wrapped our minds around how truly dangerous it is for us. Here's the danger. The danger is this. We imagine God to be something that he isn't. And then we hold God to that imaginary standard. And when God stubbornly refuses to act according to our vain imaginations, instead of adjusting our view of God, we grow angry at God and disappointed at him for not meeting our imaginary expectations. Unbelievers do this in a variety of ways, as do Christians. God comes to us in the pages of his word, and he tells us who he is and what he's like. And though our minds are very creative to make imaginary idols of God, God stubbornly refuses to bend to our standards for him, and rather he acts like the king and the God that he is. Pharaoh is finding this out. And Pharaoh thinks through his imagination that he can somehow bend God to his own iron will. And he thinks that if he keeps refusing, if he keeps hardening, if he keeps pushing it away or ignoring the problems, that God will simply relent and go away. This is a battle of wills. And God is going to win that battle every single time. Pharaoh imagines God to be something that he isn't. And Pharaoh had all sorts of grace available to him. Let's get up to speed from our study. We've been away from the study for a few weeks, maybe a month or so, a little more than a month. And so let's just catch up to speed with who we're dealing with and where we are in the book of Exodus. The first thing I want us to remember is the wickedness of this man Pharaoh, this tyrant, this leader of Egypt. It's important to remember that because the last words of this text that we see is that God judicially hardens the heart of Pharaoh. And if we're not careful, we can come off thinking, poor Pharaoh. But let's remember who this man is and the grace and mercy that he is absolutely ignoring. And then we can see that movement of God in its proper context. Pharaoh is a wicked man. He has this slave problem and Egypt. He wants to use the Israelites, but he doesn't want them to outnumber him. So he tries to create this, um, he tries to create this murderous plot where the midwives would kill the infant males as they're being born. This is not even late-term abortion. This is killing a born child right there before the mother even knows what's going on. 
The midwives, of course, refuse to go along with it. And so Pharaoh pronounces a national edict that all Egyptians are to take the Israelite boys and throw them viciously into the Nile River, either to be drowned or to be gobbled up by those animals in a horrific death. This is a man who commands the mass slaughter of thousands and thousands of infants. When God comes to him and offers him pardon, he offers to let Pharaoh off scot-free. All he has to do is release the people of Israel. And when given this opportunity, he squeezes his greedy hand tight and holds on to the Israelites as though though they are his possession. And he says, I will not let them go. In fact, he makes their burdens harder. He promotes the beatings of their taskmasters. And the people of Israel cry out because of the cruelty and boorishness of this man, Pharaoh. God comes to him time and again, offering mercy and forgiveness if he would but listen to Moses or remember the times of Joseph's intervention. But he does none of that. And he continues to harden his heart. And God steadily ramps up the pressure one after another on Pharaoh. God begins to persistently pursue Pharaoh. I want us to notice that God has already given him one sign and four of these plagues or strikes as they're referred to in the original language. The first sign, of course, was this snake that Moses, the staff that Moses threw on the ground that became a snake and devoured all of the magician's ones. And Moses picked it back up again. And then, of course, there were the four plagues, the bloody Nile, the frogs. And then we read about the the bugs, the gnats, but we don't really know what kind of bugs they were, just all sorts of bugs everywhere. We'd mentioned what the frogs might be like to step on and Just this week, my daughter Gracie left some slime out on the floor and I stepped on it yet again, reminding me that must be must what it felt like to step on a frog in Egypt. Gracie did pick it up after we reminded her. She said, oh, I'm so sorry. And there were the swarms, of course, of flying insects. Well, today we're going to cover the next two plagues, which is this pestilence that God sends upon the livestock of Egypt and boils. God is continuing to ramp up the pressure. So far, God has been attacking the pantheon of the Egyptian people. He's been attacking these false gods. And now, he's going to do something different. He's going to attack idols of the heart. He's going to attack not necessarily specific godlike figures, but he's going to attack the things that we very often replace in our lives as idols. In our nation, there are two primary idols, our wealth and our good looks, our wealth and our public image, our wealth and our health, if you want to rhyme them. These are idols for us. They were idols for the Egyptians. And God is going to put his finger on both of them in these next two plays. So let's dive into this first plague, the plague on livestock, which is recorded in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And we'll break both of these plagues down into two categories, a confrontation and a fulfillment. 
And so if you want to keep notes that way, that'll be the subdivision of these two uh, plagues. The first plague, this plague on livestock. God's command to Pharaoh is terse. It's brief. It's quick. It comes as a sovereign makes a command of an inferior, of a subject. He says, let my people go. There's not even a please attached to it. God is coming to him directly and clearly. You need to send my people away. It's a very active verb. Also, God is personal in this command. Sometimes it's difficult for our translators to bring this out, and it's the case here. But Moses has God putting the you at the head of the sentence. And so if I were to come to you this week, and, or if your boss were to come to you and issue you several commands, and he began each command with, you shall, you shall, you shall, you would understand that these are direct and terse orders for you, not something for you to delegate, not something for you to regard as optional. It's personal. He wants you to do it. And God is being quite direct. He's using powerful, pungent language. You shall let my people go, and they will serve me. And they will worship me in whatever form I'm, I desire that they worship. You might remember that Pharaoh wanted them to leave the nation, but not too far. And God is saying, they're going to leave no strings attached. And you need to let them go. Now, God gives a threat in this confrontation. He says, if you don't let the people go, I am going to bring a plague on the livestock. Now this can be a little, uh, it took me a while to kind of get to the bottom of what Moses was talking about here. Later in the passage, God is going to say, or Moses is going to say, that all the livestock died. Now we know that that doesn't mean that all the animals died, because in our next plague, animals have boils on top of them, and then hail comes down and kills a bunch of farm animals as well. We'll get to the meaning of that word all in just a minute. But I think what Moses is communicating here is this livestock is a subset of all other farm animals. This is livestock that's meant for, as like beasts of burden. Camels, it says, horses, donkeys, teams of oxen. These aren't animals that are necessarily used for meat or milk or cheese or anything like that. I don't know too many people in any culture that likes to sit down and eat donkeys or camels. I'm sure they do, but I don't hear about that in great numbers. The sheep that are referred to here are being shorn for their wool, the garments that they produce. The donkeys are, of course, used to deliver goods and services the nation over. The oxen are used to pull uh, plows and to move heavy blocks. The camels were... High speed, uh, the, they were the semi-trucks of their day. Moving mail, moving goods, moving supplies over vast distances very quickly. I think the best parallel that we can take in our nation today would be the internal combustion engine. Think of all the stuff we do with internal combustion engines. We have little small cars that people drive the world over, getting in your car and going to work and coming home. In your car, we have semi-trucks that deliver all the stuff in your grocery stores. We have uh, 
freight liners, huge engines that take vast supplies across rail, rail lines the world over. We have small little combustion engines that cut your grass. And that reminds me, I need to return Pastor Chris's lawnmower to him now that he has grass. We use small combustion engines to throw the snow off the driveway in the winter. To dig little holes for fence posts and ice fishing. Imagine in our country if half or more of the internal combustion engines simply ceased working in a moment. This would be economic catastrophe. No more moving goods across vast distances. The huge construction projects using teams of oxen to muscle blocks into place would all stand still. Farmers would have crops rot in place because they didn't have the dray horses to take their goods to market. Mail and official correspondence that Pharaoh needed to communicate to the vast regions of his empire would suffer because of lack of delivery. If these were animals that people would in fact eat, the people would have to make up for this shortage of muscle power. And now they would need the protein-based diet to move all this stuff and all this heavy lifting, and that would be the one thing they wouldn't be able to get their hands on with the death of all of these animals. This is absolute economic ruin and catastrophe. No mobility, no horsepower, no pulling power. And these lifestyles that had gotten bound up in animal power to efficiently, efficiently get their jobs done suddenly disappeared overnight in a pestilence. Imagine, imagine the stench that settled over that land. Imagine that stench. A few times of you guys have given me a call. You've harvested an elk in the beautiful Utah mountains. And one thing that never ceases to amaze me is how big those animals are. You stand up next to them and you're like, wow, those things are huge. My first year as pastor here, I was asked to go help a man bury a cow. I've also been asked to help a man bury a horse. It took all day to get that horse in the hole. Imagine a nation of animals perishing in a moment. There wouldn't be enough shovels in the country to dig the holes big enough to put all those animals in. And there wouldn't be the manpower to muscle those things into those holes. The stench that would settle over that land would be abominable. Not to mention the economic turmoil that would be unleashed upon those people. And in connection with this awful plague, God promises three things. He says these animals will die. He promises a distinction between the Israelites and his people. Not one of my people's animals will die. And he promises a certain time. Just so you know, this is no accident. Just so you know, this isn't a happenstance. I'm not merely predicting the future. I'm going to cause this to happen tomorrow. Tomorrow, these animals will die. Now, so you know, in the fulfillment of this, Moses 
deliberately kicks into sort of a matter-of-fact repetition. Notice, look at your passage here. He says this. He says, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 6. And the next day the Lord did this thing. And all the livestock of the Egyptians died. Tomorrow I'll do this thing. The Lord did this thing. The Lord did it exactly as he said that he would do. Now, we're told here that all the Egyptians in verse 6 of the um, Egyptians died. We mentioned that there are animals that will die or be affected in future plagues. So clearly not all the animals die. But the Hebrew verb, or the, the Hebrew noun rather, all, can mean can be fairly flexible. It can mean a lot of. It can mean a preponderance of. The majority of. Or it can also mean kind of like in all places. In other words, remember a few years ago when the, the Omicron variant of COVID was just sweeping the nation? They called it uh, a wave of Omicron that was coming across. I personally got Omicron, okay? Now, we would say, the news thing would say, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's sweeping the nation. Did we mean that every last American got affected by that? That every last American caught that particular variant? No, that's not what we mean. What we mean is, whether you were in Boise, Idaho, or Miami, Florida, you were threatened by this sickness that was sweeping across the nation. And that's the sense of the word here. Animals everywhere, all over the nation, were dropping dead, with the exception of one place. I'm sure there were stories that the Egyptians had a donkey that was walking sort of a narrow road on an elevated path, dropped over dead and fell down the hill and all of his goods were lost. A team of oxen were pulling a heavy block and all those oxen died and there the block sits for lack of horsepower to move it. This was sudden, it was dramatic. And what made it even more dramatic is Pharaoh did a little scientific research he went and checked on it himself. Now, I want us to notice something that God repeats three times. It's very important. Let's look at verse 4. Let's look at verse 4. It says, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing, it literally, is not one. Not one. But it doesn't translate that well into English right there, but it's, it's the idea. Not one. Now go down to verse 6. And the Lord did this thing, and all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock. Not one. Not one. Not one. God meant what he said. And not one of them died. And Jesus says that he holds all of his sheep in his hands, and not one of them will be plucked out. He will hold them all. And God here is excluding his own people to the extent that not a single one of them would die for any reasons whatsoever. And God sustained the life of those animals. And Pharaoh went and found out for himself. Pharaoh had done his own research. Pharaoh had looked into it. And sure enough, God kept his word. And despite his investigation, despite this economic ruin that had befallen him, Pharaoh still remains stubborn, his heart 
was hardened. That brings us to our second plague of the day. The sixth plague overall, which is the plague of boils. And in this case, in verses 8 through 12, there is no confrontation. Pharaoh has looked down the economic hurdle, the concern that other people have for their prized animal possessions. And by the way, I forgot to mention this. God is concerned about livestock. Do you remember at the end of the book of Jonah? God says there are many thousands of people that don't know their right hand from their left. Shouldn't I care for them? And also the cattle. God is concerned for man and animal alike, and Pharaoh hardens his heart and endangers them all. And so Moses is supposed to go in the sight of Pharaoh and not warn him, but confront him. And Pharaoh is, Moses rather, is to take something very specific. I got to know this element very well. I don't have to do it this winter. Can you see the smile on my face, how happy I am not to have to do this? For how many ever winters, 13, 14 winters I've lost track, I burned firewood to warm the house. No more firewood for me. A few years ago, I saw the gas company bringing a line right to the corner of my property. And I thought, what is that? That must be gas. And so I walked out, and I said to the guy, I said, is this a gas line? And he says, yeah. And I said, where are you ending it? And he pointed at the corner of my property, and I kid you not, I skipped and cartwheeled all the way back into my house. My back was so grateful that no more firewood collection would have to be done as soon like get up money to get the line to my house. Well, we got it. So when we get to move back into our house, we will be using natural gas. Well, at any rate, usually about this time of year, I would have to go on top of the roof and go to the chimney and sweep out my chimney. I have a wire circular brush. The first year that I did it, I didn't know what I was doing. And when I finished, I looked like I belonged to a different race. (laughs) I was covered in black soot. These fine, these fine little mesh, fine little particles, they waft into the air and they stick to everything. And so in future years, I would wear a hooded sweatshirt and cinch the hood tight and I would wear goggles over my face. The only thing I would would just get a little bit of my beard, and that was all. Sweeping the chimney. Moses was to take these fine powders, this this fine kiln silt, jet black, sticks to everything. And he walked out in Pharaoh's presence, lifted it down, and threw it into the air. And in my imagination, God took that soot and formed it into a tornado. Something supernatural happened to where that soot rose and expanded and covered the entire nation. And that sooty material, everything it stuck to, man and animals alike, got covered in painful boils. And in the fulfillment, of this painful sore, these boils. It's the same word that's used for the pox that afflicted Job from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And it was this 
on top of this thorough economic collapse of not being able to use animals, there was this bodily suffering and the boils that appeared across everybody's skin. It neutralized all the remaining beasts that they could have used. And it made these people so sore and, and in such pain that whatever ingenuity they had to move goods and services around quickly ceased and the entire nation ground to a halt, suffering from these painful boils that Israel didn't get. The text specifies, it says, all the Egyptians everywhere, all the Egyptians, and presumably none of the Israelites. Many years ago, in fact, it was right before I moved out here to Utah, we had gotten Peyton back from, some, from, our, from his grandparents, his great-grandparents up in New Hampshire, and he had, uh, he had gotten hand-foot-mouth disease from some of his cousins up there. I was on the phone with my mom telling her how the move was going and told her about Peyton's hand-foot-mouth disease and she said, oh, Greg, you never had hand-foot-mouth disease. And I said, surely I did. All kids get it. And she said, no, you never, you never got it. Well, let it be known, these are things that mothers know and never forget. For I had never had hand-foot-mouth disease until the next day. <laughs> I woke up, my feet were sore, my hands were covered in rash. I had these little pimple things developing around my lips. The morning after that, I had an outbreak of painful white sores in the back of my throat. The only relief I could get was to take popsicles and gently rub them on the back of my throat, and it would cool my throat for 15 or 20 minutes, and I'd have some relief. We were moving here. We drove to Denver, and I think we stayed in Denver where my in-laws for two or three extra days. I can't remember how long. Simply because I couldn't move because of how painful those sores were. My feet, my hands, but especially down my throat and mouth. It's painful to get in. Now imagine an outbreak of sores like that all over your whole body. Such the magicians, these people who were attempting to undercut the word of God, these magicians were singled out as being particularly evil men by their deceptive arts. And they were the ones who were influencing Pharaoh and they were so affected by these boils that they were not even able to stand before Moses. They couldn't get up. They couldn't move. They, of all people, were to be afflicted. Not that they would have wanted to repeat this sign, but even if they wanted to, they couldn't because they were in such deep pain and distress. And here, it's important to note that the last thing we hear from the magicians is that they are inept, incapable, in pain, laying on their beds, unable to do anything good for Pharaoh, for Pharaoh's people. Well, Pharaoh sees this, of course. We assume that he too suffered from the plague of boils. And even when his body was touched, he's hard. And so God, sitting on his throne, is the great judge of the living and the dead, made a judicial decision. This man 
who had conspired to murder infants and who made it a national project to murder children and who was graced with direct revelation from the Lord time and again refused to listen. He got to a point in his life of refusal where the Lord said, enough. My grace and patience has ended for you. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And God hardened that man's heart and essentially gave Pharaoh exactly what he wanted already. What Pharaoh wanted was to stubbornly hold on to something that he couldn't keep. And so God gave him more of what he already wanted. And it was a judicial act that's reserved for God and for God alone. The Bible goes on to tell us that when the Lord comes and knocks on the door of your heart, that you'd better listen. Because today is the day of salvation. There's no guarantee that God will extend his grace another day for you. There's no guarantee that God will continue to hold out that offer of mercy. God is so merciful and gracious and kind and patient and long-suffering. But we also have to remember that God is God and God is just and he does not let the guilty go free. And here was a man who was offered extraordinary grace in the face of extraordinary sin and he persistently hardened his heart against it. God did not act until Pharaoh had hardened his own heart many times over. And I hope the clock doesn't tick down to zero for you. I hope you'll hear the Lord and respond to him. Now we've got some principles to ponder. Let's cover those before we wrap up for the day. Number one, let's meditate on the fact that God delights to protect his people. Psalm 23, 5, the Lord prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Here, the Israelite people, yes, they were in bondage. Yes, they were still suffering. None of their animals were lost. All of their skin was clear. And what did they have to do to get that? Nothing. Nothing. It was pure grace. God just extended his mercy upon those people. They would need in the final plague only to splatter blood on their doorposts as a symbol of atonement. But in these early plagues, God was simply shining his grace on his people. And no matter how trying the times, no matter how awful the circumstances, God has a way of taking care of his own. You say, but aren't there people who die? Aren't there people who are martyred? Aren't there people who are killed? Well, of course there are. In Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 57, 
Stephen is preaching to the Jews. And he enrages them and they gnash their teeth at him and he looks up and he sees Christ. And as he's granted this heavenly vision, that's when the people take him and stone him and we're given the impression that Stephen simply was ensconced away while the Jews were allowed to do with his body whatever they wanted. Even in death, even in disease, God ultimately has you taken care of if you are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're wealthy beyond your wildest imaginations. And you're secure, you're safe. You're as safe now as you've ever been. Sometimes when talking with Christians who are struggling with fear, I ask them this question. The reason I ask them this question is this is a question I'll ask myself when I'm struggling with fear. When Daniel got thrown into the lion's den and one of those lions walked right up and licked his chops and looked Daniel in the eye, was Daniel afraid? Was he? Of course. (laughs) Would you be? (laughs) Absolutely. Was Daniel safe? He'd never been safer. Never been safe. Being afraid and being safe are two totally different things. And in God, you are safe. Number two. God possesses all prosperity and power. The Egyptians had so much pride in their national economy, so much pride in their pantheon. Pharaoh had so much pride in his power and his might. And in one swoop, God takes it all away. In Psalm verses 20, verses 7 and 8, we're told that some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. These were the mechanisms of warfare in that day. And some people put their trust in those things. But we will remember the name of the Lord, our God. And we steward our possessions and we steward our bodies for God's glory. But at the bottom of it all, we have to remember that God is in firm control and possession of all of that. And what would it be if you worked your whole life to squirrel something away and have it taken away from you? This is why Jesus says, lay up your treasures in heaven where thieves don't break through and steal, where inflation can't get to it, where moth and dust does not corrupt. God has your possessions in his possession. He has the powers that affect you in his power. And God controls it all. In Psalm 4, David says, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And he says that right after he says, he says, you've given me more joy when their grain and wine abound. When people are living high on the hog, of course they worship God. But what about in times of trial? David says, even then I lie my head down and sleep. Because I know that you alone make me to dwell in safety. Number three. Number three. God always gets the last word. God always gets the last word. 
In this passage right here in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 5, probably the most powerful man who's ever lived, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. God calls him the head of gold. He's just suffered a mental breakdown. He's, he's been suffering under the judicial hand of God, but God raised him up, and now Nebuchadnezzar is given the opportunity to write Scripture for us. Isn't that amazing? And he says that of all the people in all the world, they're, they're counted as nothing in comparison to God, and God does whatever he wills And none can stay his hand. None can stay his hand. I've I've given this illustration before, but it was an aha moment for me. I I was a freshman or sophomore in a Christian university. I don't remember what year I was. And there was a preacher, and he said, You and God make a majority. There was an old boy sitting behind me. He's from deep in the backwoods of Alabama. You know, he spoke English most of the time. (laughs) Well, his name was Derek. And Derek heard this preacher say, you and God make a majority. And Derek says this, and I'll quote him in my best Alabama draw that I can do. He says, sorry, bub, God makes a majority. (laughs) You don't have anything to do with it. Is what Derek was saying, and he's right. God makes a majority. And it doesn't matter if all the people in all the world say X, if God says Y, God gets the last word. And so side with God. He gets the last word. And here Pharaoh thought he could get God to bend to his wishes and to his will. And God is immovable. God has God's purposes at heart and in mind. And those purposes also happen to be very good to us. So side with God. He's the one who's ultimately in control. And he's the one who delights to preserve people who hope in his word. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to apply this passage and all sorts of different ways this week. May we take great confidence and courage in the fact that you preserve your people, you delight to care for them. May we take great courage in the fact that you always have the last word. You've declared our justification in Christ Jesus, and it is final and sealed, and we are forever safe in your ever-loving arms, and we are So grateful. So, since our safety is assured, may we with great boldness and courage take your word forth, knowing you preserve your servants. Give us the boldness that Moses and Aaron had here in confronting this powerful man. And yet, they did not suffer the slightest for it. So help us to take their courage to heart. And proclaim your goodness to those around us. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this time Nathan's going to come lead us in a final song. Appreciate uh, sticking with us through this uh, section of scripture. And I'm going to head to the back and I'd be delighted to greet you as you make your way out.
All right, if you'll stand, me, stand with me once again as we close singing Worthy of Worship, and after we sing this together, I'll ask uh, Pastor Chris if he'll close us. missed.